Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Danny Kim, head of revenue at SVOX. Danny, it's great to have you on. Josh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. So you are a, uh, a crypto OG, um, you know, starting your first role in the space at Ipit all the way back in, in 2014. But, but prior to that, you had the opportunity to work uh, full-time at State Street, BNP, and other more traditional financial institutions. So can you give us a bit of your background uh, you know, pre-crypto before we really you know, dive in on, on all the work you've done within this space? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, so before crypto, I, used, you know, I was working at State Street and BNP, um, primarily in the interest rate derivative side. Um, so we were working on you know, the operations of, with the banks on the, the cash management, cash settlements, and then also looking into the, the the cash trades of you know interest rate derivatives, and on our end, like you know, so with my first my first job out of college, um, I was with State Street. Um, we were I was working at a, a fund admin for State Street, where we were working with all the probably all the largest interest rate macro funds in there. And on my end, my responsibility was really just managing the books, making sure the reconciliations are in place, um, and then really seeing how trades are being done. From there, I kind of spent a couple of years there and then moved over to BNP, um, working at um, their interest rate derivative side on their desk. Um, and then really from on that side, I was really getting to understand, you know, how do the major banks actually operate when they, and how are they actually doing financial trades, right? Like how are they settling between one bank with the other? How are you actually performing the trades? Where are the breaks? Um, so that's where like a lot of my financial background came in. And so what was your first uh, interaction with crypto that you can remember? And, and what was your impetus for, for entering the space back in 2014? When you first entered, had you already kind of fully gone down the crypto, crypto rabbit hole? Or was it more of just like, hey, an interesting opportunity you know, opened up at a company? Yeah, yeah. So while, so it's funny, like, well, it's not funny, but I was during, so I was at, during BNP, um, you know, this was during the recession, right? And this is where, you know, Dodd-Frank rules were coming in. There's a whole big shift and change in the whole banking industry. Um, and during that time, I'm like, man, like things are going to change. Banking is going to change. You know, and I, I'm looking, I'm seeing and I'm looking at my managing director and their directors getting laid off. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe banking isn't the most secure job. And, you know, maybe it doesn't have the best opportunity in the world. Um, so I started working and looking into um, my own startup, which was going to be a e-commerce uh, site. And when I started there, the biggest piece and issue that I encountered was actually payments. You know, when you're talking to a lot of these these businesses and small businesses, one of the biggest pain points back in that time and still today is actually chargebacks. You can, you know, an individual can pay with a credit card or a debit card, and then you know immediately the day after or within the hour, call their bank and say they didn't authorize this. And what happens is that merchant ends up having to pay back the um, the bank and also lose the goods. Um, so in that end, I started looking into, all right, like, you know, there's and pay the a, transaction cost. Exactly. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a double loss, which is insane for, and yet people and companies are taking this and doing this, you know, day to day. And I'm like, man, this doesn't make any sense at all. 
And so I just kept looking more into it and like trying to figure out like what other solutions are there. Um, and then I, I forget how, but I, I think it was like one day I was like in Penn Station, um, waiting for my train for the uh, for the lure. And I, I, I saw an article of Bitcoin. I think it was on Wire. There was like a, it was like on the cover of it. And I was like, oh man, this is interesting. So I just started reading more about it. And I actually just completely forgot about my own business of like what I was trying to start and just got into this whole rabbit hole of, of Bitcoin and like looking into like, man, like what it can do, where it's going to go. And then I'm like tying, like being in the financial space, I'm just tying this into like, holy crap, like this is actually going to be the future of finance. Like this can be the future of finance, you know, it may work in parallel or maybe even like, you know, the banks just may adopt it. So I kind of sidetracked from what I was originally working on to getting more into the space and just reading more, more up on it. Um, coincidentally, it turns out that uh, my group of friends, uh, Bobby Cho, was already in the space. Um, he was setting up, or he did set up the, you know, first OT, Bitcoin OTC desk with Second Market, or now known as Genesis. And so, like you know, time to time, I just you know, shoot him a message saying you know what's going on with Bitcoin, or like just trying to pick it up. And then I've been, I was picking up my, uh, you know, I was buying my own Bitcoin. I actually just took, went on to Coinbase looking for roles and such. But everything during that time was all engineers. Like Coinbase was started, like every single role, all engineers didn't need anything of my background. So I was just trying to figure out that day to day, how do I get in? And then somehow, like one day, Bobby mentioned, calls me out. And he's like, hey, man, like I'm moving over to ITBIT, sends me this um, Craigslist ad for a, a, a job post. And I'm like, oh, dude, man, that's <laughs> awesome. That's yeah. fucking awesome. I'm like, dude, this is so shady. He's like, no, no, don't worry about it, man. Like, if you meet with it these guys. It's funny that ITBIT became like the least shady exchange in all of crypto it, <laughs> after exactly. starting with Craigslist. <laughs> exactly exactly and i'm like i'm like he's like dude like 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 look he's like here like hear me out like talk to the guys they're completely legitimate like you'll be amazed i go in meet with chad cascarilla emil andrew all the guys are still there um and then i meet them i'm like man this is freaking awesome like they were pitching me the idea like look we're going to create the first regulated institutional exchange and i was like all right i'm in and funny thing is, like before I even got a job or before I even accepted, ne- literally next day I go to my uh, MD and I'm like, "Hey man, I came across a thing about Bitcoin. I'm uh, quitting my job." And like I was actually on the fast track to like move up um, higher up, but he's like, "Hey man, like everything going on that makes complete sense. You're young enough, like do it." And I'm like, "Done." <laughs> and wow, then that's yeah. awesome. And then I was you like, didn't get lectured on ruining your life. No, I, I, that happened with my parents. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, but like the funny thing was like the day after I'm like, holy crap, I actually don't have a job with them yet. So I just kept handing them and then I, uh, everything worked out. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So what was your, what was your first job at ItBit? And you know, how did you progress over the next uh, few years? I know you moved into Gemini and then, you know, you, you ended up at SFOX, but would love to hear about the roles that you played at ItBit and Gemini. Yeah. So given my background of being in operations, understanding how, you know, bank settlements work and reconciliations and so forth, you know, as if it was becoming the first regulated exchange, they, you know, they needed, they need, they needed more professionals with um, backgrounds of financial services of, you know, how to do reconciliation and so forth. So I came in working in operations. I was their um, head of operations at the time, um, managing, um, you know, the settlement books of making sure the deposits work kind of basically built out their operations team um, from Singapore to the US. And my role there was really to build out the customer service, build out reconciliation, making sure how deposits are going to be done, how the funding process is going to work, 
all really the day-to-day stuff and then working with customers, understanding what the issues are, the intricacies, um, and so forth. So that's kind of where my, my, I first dabbled into crypto, um, really just carrying over what I learned in, in banking and passing that over to, um, you know, the crypto exchange, because that was based really like a very, like a straightforward, like a transfer, because that's exactly what we needed. And so, so after that, you, you, you moved into a role, which I can't remember the exact name of, but it was something like director of institutional services, uh, at Ipit, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I'd, I'd love to kind of hear about that, but also like what, you know, in, in 2015, 2016, what, you know, what kinds of, inst- you know, quote unquote institutions were you servicing? Yeah, sure. So when we, so when I came in, op- I went from operations to the institutional client group and that group was, you know, part business development, sales, um, and client services. Um, it was a kind of a natural progression because on my end, you know, as part of the operations of dealing with, you know, deposits, reconciliation, and so forth, it was also a lot of client, you know, client success of working with the clients, understanding what their issues are, making sure that everything that they need and making sure that they feel, they feel, feel completely comfortable of what's going on with, you know, their trades and so forth. Um, and so that's kind of like, you know, that's kind of where I started. Like I went from operations to the, to the business and sales side. Um, and you know, the type, the type of institutions at that time, honestly, you'll be surprised. They were, you know, they were very early high net worth individuals to family offices, even certain, um, trading prop shops, um, that were early on getting, getting their feet wet. Um, because frankly, like for a, a prop shop, one thing that they love trading is volatility. Regardless right. of whatever the product is, if there's vol, they're going to trade at a lot, right? Um, and so we saw a lot of guys kind of dipping their toes in. But the problem was is that the infrastructure is completely different from what they're used to, right? Because if you're trading FX, you're trading equities, you know, one, you're trading millions of dollars of trades, but then you're also trading at a high frequency high frequency rate, right? Right. But then you think, you think about that time, like back in the day, like, you know, exchanges available at that time, like, you're using REST API. You had, you know, you had rate limits where you could only ping the API only six times per second, which is just absurd. Um, nothing like high frequency that can handle. Right. Um, and then you had the, um, you know, high net worth individuals or family offices who really didn't have a, you know, an investor spectrum where, you know, it limited them what they can invest in. These guys are like, you know, they have their own personal assets they can invest and dabble into. And they saw us at, you know, there's potential for pure alpha. And so you kind of had those guys really come in and, you know, early on, um, that's who we were basically catering to. Um, we knew this early on that there was going to be these guys coming in, um, playing around with it. Um, and so that's kind of who we attended to. Now, we, we started trying to talk with banks and so forth. Um, but, you know, that was a very slow move in early, like a very slow engaging move because there's just so much regulation compliance needed on their end, right? It's, they love the idea. Um, because if you talk to a trading desk, they're telling me, oh, I, I could actually get XYZ returns and I could see this. It makes complete sense. But then you got to think about on the, on the banking side of you know them being regulated, who they have to report to, how they can report it. Can it be trusted? There's a mandate within the company. Um, and so that's kind of you know, who, we spoke, who we spoke with during that time. And it's funny how things have changed now. And, and so you moved over to a, to a role at uh, you know, Gemini. Uh, after that, you know, what was, what was, you know, the role that you were doing there, you know, what were the kinds of differences and, and what was it like working with the, uh, the Winklevi? Yeah. Um, so when I, so I was with Ipit for a couple of years and, you know, as the market was changing, you know, they were working with more banks. Um, they started pivoting and looking into the blockchain side. And for myself, I still believed in and loved 
crypto trading. Um, and so for a natural progression on my end was move from ITBIT and go to uh, Gemini Exchange, the second um, and, you know, second regulated exchange that has, you know, that was a trust license charter bank. And so I, I moved there as a head of sales. Um, and my whole goal was really to get, you know, um, more clients onboarded into the platform to use crypto, uh, to trade crypto and to, you know, get more clients on, on that end. Um, so it was very, very similar process. So, you know, during that time, I've already had my, I already had my network I'm working with the guys that I worked with on on Ipit, um, and you know during that time the market was getting more interested. We started seeing more interest. Um, we started talking to more buy side firms, um, more from the traditional sides, and then more even more sophisticated um, trading shops coming in and, and looking into because you know what what Gemini was doing was they were really really trying to focus on the institutional side, but on the infrastructure, right? So they built out their you know they built out their NY four co location fix, which I think was one of the first where actual HFT guys can, you know, link in and use that infrastructure to trade what they, you know, what they're normally used to. Um, so my job and role with there was, you know, building that network and building those customers um, in that space. And, you know, just to answer your other question, like working with the Twins was great. Um, they were, you know, very, very involved. Like you would see them day to day, understanding and wanting to know what's going on. Um, so their involvement was, you know, very close. And it was, it was kind of great to see that from a, you know, from a guy like from a guy where you see like these guys are you know well like you know they made off very well, and then they're still involved and they still have that, that hunger because they want that Bitcoin adoption to occur. And so, you know, you you, you then moved over to S Fox. So, what what originally drew you to S Fox? You know, what is S Fox, and 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 what makes the platform, uh, you know, different from 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 others in the space? Yeah. So you know when. Being in my background from being at Gemini and Coin, I mean Gemini and Itbit, you know, one big thing that they we were focused on institutional adoption was regulation, right? Like the, everything needs to be compliant. Then we kind of had a thesis that if you're compliant and you are regulated, um, that's going to increase this institutional adoption. But the more and more people that I kept speaking with in these institutional players, you know, I started realizing there's actually it's partly in, in, um, regulation, but then it's also more so um, infrastructure. And I keep going to that part because you know, during 14 to 17, like 14, 16, 17, ex- like markets were extremely fragmented, right? Um, each exchange didn't have enough liquidity. And so if you were to expect any major player to come in, like for them to have to onboard with each individual exchange tr- and try to do these trades individually that didn't have any uniformity between their peers, it just didn't make any sense. Um, and so like being in my background from banking again, I was like, man, like basically this is what, you know, this is why, this is why prime brokers exist. Um, and so I was like looking into the space and I was like, I'm like, who's the closest to a prime broker? Um, and, you know, Fox was actually one of my first clients when I became, you know, when I moved up as a institutional client um, director and I was like looking at them, I was looking at their model. I'm like, man, that's actually a, a prime broker model. This is actually going to help uh, institutional adoption. So for me, it was, I was like, all right, well, let me, just, let me move away from, you know, these individual exchanges and go to the next move, which is the prime broker model. Um, and so when I spoke with Akbar and George, who are the co-founders, you know, we were chit-chatting, and I was like, you know, prime brokerage is the, you know, the the, the next step of the adoption. And when I speak to them, they're like, we completely agree. Like that's that's exactly where they were going for. Um, and so the whole point of prime brokerage is, is that you know, it's to create a single point of access, right? So it's to make your cash more efficient and trading more efficiently. Um, and so what SFOX was doing was what they did was they created an account and, and connectivity to all the major exchanges 
that they that they connect to, but not just connecting. Um, they did the due diligence, the process, so that others wouldn't have to, um, and then made made sure that there's like a strong connectivity to the exchanges, so that any new participant to come in, they want to trade, they could just directly trade on SFOX, and that client would immediately have access to a aggregated order book of all the all the major liquidity providers. Um, so, was it more like a smart order router when you first joined at that time, and and, and kind of how has it evolved since then? Yeah, so you know, originally it was just a, a smart order router where you know, it, and it was connected to a few exchanges um, where you would come in and it would have one integrated order book, and then when you want to buy, you know, one Bitcoin, two Bitcoins, or whatever, it'll take your order and then spread it across every exchange or liquidity provider to get you the best price, right? And keep in mind, as a, as a user, you don't you do not need to have an account or capital at each platform. All you need to do is interact with SVOX, which is very very different from other platforms out there. And so what evolved was as we got, we started getting more and more clients come in and we're getting clients from daily active traders who are taking advantage of these natural arbitrage opportunities because we're aggregating from different exchanges. Um, And then we're working with, um, you know, family offices as well as like funds. And then as we're speaking with them, they're like, you know, we actually have certain strategies um, that we need um, and, you know, just a basic market or limit or it doesn't really work. Um, and then we were looking at our own orders and we're like, you know what, if you add in more advanced algorithmic order types to this, you could take advantage of this by pre- and executing at a better price. So we started from just a smart order router and then added in more algorithmic orders, like a, a smart routing iceberg order. So that if you're trying, if you're trying to trade, you know, a million dollars to, you know, to $20 million, it's not going to move the market because what it'll do is it'll take your integrated order book. And it'll trickle orders across every single exchange and OPs, and then you know make sure that you're not you're getting a better price. So we had that, so we had that growth, and then we started adding in OTC providers as OTC started doing you know moving away from the from you know from Skype and, and Telegram and so forth, and going more to electronic. Um, we we included OTC providers into our feed so that now clients are getting one a, a true price discovery of you know what's going on with prices between exchanges and OTC and where they fit in the space. And two, you know, when you're executing, now you're executing across not just exchanges, but OTC, because generally OTC has been limited or, or been like blocked off to really like these high volume traders where you have to trade a minimum of anywhere from like $250,000 to $500,000. But because they're integrated and working with us, now if you are trading, you know, one Bitcoin, two Bitcoins or whatever, your smart route, your smart order router is going to hit an OTC book, um, an exchange, um, and all these other LPs. Uh, so we've just really been building out and building on top of that value of a, a you know a, a transparent market discovery of you know you know seeing getting getting you best price execution on, in, the, in the markets. And so, what are kind of the pieces that you think are, are left that kind of you know fill that prime brokerage equation for for SFOX? And you know, are you focusing on on anything like lending or, or custody or, or any any of those other uh, uh, you know I, I guess uh, topics for lack of a better word? Yeah. So you know, I, I think prime service. So prime brokerage, prime services. Um, well, prime prime brokerage, prime brokerage is a is is a subset of prime services, and I think. I think the big picture is becoming a full prime service offering, right? Um, and prime services covers a whole array of things. It's not just you know best price execution. It's an efficiency in, in capital, um, and it's also adding in lending and borrowing because it allows you as a, a as user to you know 
use your use your capital as much as possible, or also, you know, be able to extend credit as needed. Um, and then there's cap intros. Um, there's in the derivative space. Um, so in our end, like our 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 value and our like you know what we're trying to go for is just get more towards that. So we have that spot exchange OTC market. Um, we are looking into and have been looking into the lending and borrowing side so that we can then facilitate this for our clients. Um, and then going into a derivative space where you know the derivative space today, uh, the unregulated side is still very fragmented. Um, and so you imagine you take our model and adding it to the derivative space, that's going to add so much more value to this and, and so much more efficiency in trading. Um, so we're going to that. Um, we've just recently launched our, our dark pool. Um, so that's supposed to also help with more liquidity. Um, so that there's there's all of that that that's where where we're trying to get go to. Yeah, so excited to to hop into the dark pool thing, but let's you know want to cover a little bit more ground first because that's a that's a pretty big and exciting announcement. So, my question is, you know, what what types of clients is is S Fox servicing? I mean, you you mentioned some clients that are trading just one two BTC. Are you are you servicing a number of of retail clients as well? And is that something that you originally anticipated when you, uh, you know, started at S Fox a few years ago? Yeah, so like so, our focus has always been on the institutional market. Um, you know. Coming up, like you know, with the idea of prime brokerage, we're like, all right, the people that are going to need this and require this, it's going to be the, you know, it's going to be the institutions, the the funds, the enterprises, and so forth, right? And you know, we've we've had we've we've built that product where it's built out for the sophisticated traders, investors, um, and these fund managers to use our platform. Um, but then we naturally saw a, a, a growth in in these active traders and in retail. Like we've partnered so. The great thing about our platform, right, is that it's that infrastructure layer. So we've actually been working and partnered. We've partnered with many of the biggest names in you know in this industry. Like we've at one point, you know, we we were partnered with blockchain. Like if you were a U.S. customer buying Bitcoin or selling Bitcoin on on blockchain, it was actually through us through our partnership because they were integrated into us. If you are buying and selling Ether or Bitcoin through T Zero's um, app, that's through us as well. And so. With that, we kind of with those partnerships, we actually saw retail guys coming in directly and be like, "Oh, this is actually easier." Um, so we saw that progression as well. Um, so that's kind of like a whole array of clients that we work with. Um, I think right now is that you know, the clients that use us that really take value are the largest traders. We have, you know, we're proud. I, I'm proud to say that we have actually probably like a few of the largest firms or crypto funds that have more than 500 AUM using our platform, frankly because of how well our, our platform performs. And so. How have you seen the the market evolve from an exchange and trading landscape when you first entered the space back in 2014, and then you know in the middle there when you first joined SFOX to now, you know in terms of in terms of things like slippage, liquidity, spreads, uh, ARB opportunities, you know what 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 have you kind of seen over the last I guess seven years? Man, <laughs> you know there, there's a, a lot a lot has changed, man. Like. When you when you when you look back in 2014 or even earlier, like it was frankly it was just like a it, it wasn't like a, even like a two way order book like you just saw it was kind of more like a retail flow right imagine Coinbase where you didn't have a Coinbase Pro like you would ask for one Bitcoin and they would then you know tell you this is the price eventually one week later they'll deliver you the Bitcoin if they did or not um, and like you know and then eventually you got this two way book. Um, but you know what's really changed is you could say it's, it's the spreads, um, like from not only just from the from in between exchanges, but on the exchanges themselves, and then the depth, right? So 
from 14 to 16, 17, I mean, there were so many arbitrage opportunities really because like markets just weren't efficient. And so you could, you know, if you were a trader, you can make like a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, really just buying on one exchange and then selling on another exchange. Um, there were, you know, at a certain point, there were like ARBs, just in the US, there were ARBs about like anywhere from one to 5% on a daily basis. And then if you look at Korea, shoot, Korea was like 50% ARBs, um, which was insane. Um, I still remember the kimchi premium. <laughs> Dude, there were so many people making, like that's, I consider that free money. That That is zero risk. You are yeah. buying something and selling something immediately. Um, and it's just crazy how everyone was trying to capture that. And I was actually talking to somebody the other day who was in the space even a little bit earlier than that. And he was like, yeah, I was buying like, you know, a Bitcoin off of like, you know, uh, you know, like local Bitcoins and then selling it on fucking Craigslist in small increments and just making like 30 percent um, yeah. <laughs> spread because I was I was buying the whole Bitcoin, like just just unreal things. It, it's it's unreal. And, and like, unfortunately, those those great days are, are gone. <laughs> but that's because like you, you kind of had like more sophisticated guys come in and like more like sophisticated platforms be built out. Right. And that's kind of like going to the point like. Dude, like, like those spreads and those arbitrage opportunities between exchanges have really, really tightened. And then, like, even the the exchanges themselves, like on like on exchange on an order book, those spreads have tightened so much. Where it got, it, it really came to the point now, like market makers, like if you were a market maker in the space back in 14, 15, 16, um, 17 and such, like it was really like if you knew how to program, you could easily market make and make make some good money. Now you actually have like the sophisticated train stuff like the Jane Streets, Jump, um, Haymire and so forth really coming in. And people would say like market making is pretty damn hard now because you have such hard competition. Um, and the reason why these guys have come in is because all these exchanges have invested so much money into building out that infrastructure that, that can support it. Um, and it's funny, like if 2017 didn't happen where you had that market run, I don't think where we, we would be where we are because – there was always that chicken and egg. Like, do we want to invest and build infrastructure and hope that these guys will come in? Or, you know, do we just, just wait and see? Um, now, when 2017 happened, like so much people were making so much money, like it, it was, and the volatility was just so crazy. It was so like all these prop shops and everything came in, like they couldn't resist. And they were just knocking on everyone's door and be like, look, we, you guys need to build this. If you guys build this, we're going to come in right now. And because of 17, I think that's what really like really made this market like the prices evolved, volatility, the prices came in, and then you had these trading shops and they started knocking on doors, and they were these exchanges were like, all right, these guys are actually here now. We don't need to sell to them. Like they're actually selling to us, and so we should build this. And so now you have like Ipbit, Coinbase, Bitstamp, um, Gemini, like working like building their OMS with like Nasdaq or building out a NY NY F four co-location system so that they can support all these guys. So like all of that changed a lot. And so when you're looking at this market today, like these spreads are so much tighter. Like there's so much more activity because of all this, all that change that happened. And also, I mean, fees have just come down a tremendous amount, right? I mean, you know, just, just, uh, you know, you, I mean, look, there's, there's still obviously retail platforms that are charging egregious fees, but I mean, you know, you know, I'm seeing fees, you know, f- fees on new exchange pop up that, that are like, you know, you know, a negative maker and like a, a BIP taker fee, 
right? Or two bips or three bips, which I'm sure, you know, was was drastically different than what ItBit and Coinbase was charging back in 2014. Oh, yeah, man. Well, I mean, it's actually kind of funny about fees, right? Because initially, yeah, fees were uh, extremely high for given for obvious reasons, right? It, uh, it was such a a, a new product and people were like, if you, if you want it, like, you know, you got to pay the premium and so forth. So you were, people were charging anywhere from 50 basis points to hundred basis points. Um, and then they, it started, everything started converging down, right? Because you had more and more guys just trying to compete and so forth. And they were just dry, like just driving fees all the way down to near zero. Um, and then like, you know, Binance came out there like, forget it. We're just going to, we're just going to put 10 basis points across everything. But then, like it's funny because then you kind of saw that you know people were people were racing to the bottom. People were offering rebates, and then there was so much adoption that now you kind of saw that reverse where exchanges were like, you know what, we have all these customers now we could charge more fees. <laughs> so like you kind of saw like how like Coinbase and the other guys started racing very their quietly, fees. quietly. Very quietly. <laughs> yeah. um, but then it, it kind of says like, look, it's not like they're trying to like make more money off it. It's just like you kind of just see like there's there's just natural adoption of new kind of like players coming in um and you know there it's it's comfortable to pay that you know because it, it's expensive to run an exchange like to for our platform or any trading platform itself like for us like to run it there's a lot of like there's a lot of effort and a lot of money being spent into i mean it. the compliance costs alone are, are tremendous oh dude it's like i mean i forget i remember like cracking announced like how many like how many subpoenas and like, you know, how many, like, you know, think how much money they spent. I, I talked to an exchange the other day and they're, they're a big exchange. They're not the biggest exchange, but they're spending a million bucks a month on legal. Yeah, see, exactly. And it's funny. Right? Like, <laughs> like people don't realize that, like, but like there is so much money being spent on these, like on, on, like, on, on operations and compliance because like regulators have no idea what's going on or they're trying to grasp it. So like, like, and like, you know, like compliance guys are trying to like meet up with it. So it's insane. Um, I mean, yeah. you must have, you must have remembered. I, I, I assume the, the NYDFS bit license probably came out when you're at Gemini. Um, and then that whole process and how, you know, what started at what, like a million dollars to get a bit license or whatever it was when it first came out. And just that, you know, that whole process as well. Dude, like you, you had to be, you had to, you had to have a war chest and you had to be rich to, to, to get the, to, to get the bit license and even a trust charter. I mean, because it, it's funny, right? It's, it's not just, it's not the application, it's not the application where like filling out the form. Sure. That's like easy. Right. But then you're paying legal fees because you got to make sure like all this is correct. You're talking to lawyers and dude, you know how much lawyers make, right? <laughs> and, if you want to talk about the biggest winner from the 2017 <laughs> ICO boom, it's the freaking law firms. I mean, they're still killing it. I mean, they're still, you know, it's all of a sudden the SCP, SEC subpoena is another uh, token issuer. I mean, there, there are thousands left and then phones start ringing at a law firm and, you know, it's time to, uh, to defend. 100% man. Yeah, exactly. Like, 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 the biggest winners in crypto are the lawyers. And it's crazy because you kind of see how like so many of these lawyers actually have pivoted. They were working at these um, law firms and then went in-house or created their own firms and they're just crushing it. <laughs> it's uh, it's unreal. So so earlier you mentioned the the launch of a dark pool. So, you know, a lot of our listeners are crypto native and, and, and may not necessarily know what a dark pool is. So I'd love if you could kind of, you know, walk us through what a dark pool is, you know, what the benefits of dark pools are and what types of clients you, you're, you're looking to service with, with the release of your dark pools. Yeah, sure. So, you know, dark pools, it's actually very common in the traditional market. Most of the institutions, um, large money um, investors are using dark pools, uh, frankly, because they don't want to move the market, right? And, 
you know, as we started talking to more institutional investors and traders, they were like, you know, we, there is OTC, there is exchanges, but one thing we do want is a dark pool. Um, and the reason why is because, you know, if they're going to trade anywhere from 20 to 100 to 200 million, like you kind of saw in MicroStrategy, um, if you try to post that anywhere, like if you tell that, if you put that in the, um, the exchange or even OTC, information gets shared and that gets disseminated and then that ends up potentially moving the market. Right. Um, what a dark pool does is it completely hides all information. The only person that knows um, what your what your what your intent is is you as a user. Um, so as a dark pool, you can place your order. Um, you know, no matter what size, no one's going to see it. It's not going to get executed anywhere. Um, if a buyer comes in, um, either if the buyer comes in and you know, say you want to say you're willing to sell, you know, a Bitcoin at ten thousand. And someone's willing to buy it at, you know, buy Bitcoin at five thousand. They both put it into the dark pool. That order will cross, and and what's going to be great is that you both are going to get like the mid price. Um, so the one benefit is is that no one knows that 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 trade happened unless um, only if you're the buyer and seller. Will, will um, you see that in the mempool? So you won't, right? You won't because what you will see is like you know there there is money say you know coming into Sfox and. You know, with that, then you can see, all right, there's transactions, but you're not going to see when it's going to. Oh, trade. it's an internal transaction to yeah. Sfox, and then with the money's withdrawn. Ah, it's smart. Yeah, so you're not going to see when that trade's going to happen, who traded it, um, you know, or whatnot. It's just going to happen where it's completely privately done. And what's great is, you know, it's not only private to the public; it's also private to Sfox because if you want to have a true dark pool, you can't have anyone know what's going on in the market. Um, internally or externally, what we can see is eventually that you know the volume has been traded, but we're not, no one's going to see at what price and so forth. Um, so that's really the pure value because you know if you're going back, like you know, I think OTC did a very good job in helping facilitate large size transactions. But the reality is, like when you tell, like when you tell somebody, hey, I want to buy, you know, twenty million dollars worth of Bitcoin, that information gets shared. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because, uh, like, like, I was, like, was going to say to think it doesn't is ridiculous. I mean, I, I have a friend that that probably a year and a half ago bought a million dollars worth of chain link and all of a sudden got a call from another OTC desk with that million dollars worth of chain link because because, you know, they they heard and they, they drove <laughs> the price up by like five or 10 percent. Um, it, it's, it's so true. And like, unfortunately, people are a little naive and, and they, need, they need to understand that a little more. <laughs> but And these are big name OTC desks, though. I mean, these are two of probably the top five biggest desks in the space that, that were involved in this. So it, yeah. it, it certainly goes on. But the thing is, look, like, it's not like these OTC. And look, look, by all means, like, I don't think OTC desks are, are trying to do is take advantage of it. It's just, you know, you kind of have to do that because if you want to hedge yourself, right? Because as an OTC desk or trader, you are taking principal risk, and how do you manage that risk? You got to see what's going on in the market, and you got to start hedging yourself, right? So, if you know someone's going to come in at, you know, two hundred million dollars, you're going to start hedging yourself and putting it in the open market. And you know, as order starts getting printed and executed, things change. Um, so it's it's not by you know it's not by like them trying to be ill will and you know do this to take advantage of it. You know, some may, but you know, most I would say like the like the, the big trusted guys don't. Um, um, unfortunately that does happen. So that's why the dark, that's why the, the value of the dark pool is there. And so how do you build liquidity up in the dark pool? Is that, is it, is, are you just now routing orders across everything from OTC desks, exchanges, your own dark pool? Like how, how do you build up that initial liquidity? 
Yeah, so that, so there's two ways. Um, the first way is if you know if you are interested in dark pool, um, you can have your orders routed and place your orders in dark pool, kind of like a natural, you know, exchange building out their own liquidity, right? They will tell you know as a user, you come in, place your order into the dark pool. The second piece is is I think is very what's very interesting on our end that we do differently is. So with going back to our algorithm order types, we have a lot of iceberg orders, right? A lot of different types of iceberg orders. And all so how an iceberg order works is as you're trading, you, know, you, know, you may trickle out some orders, but then behind it, there's that large size. Well, what happens with that large size? So what we did was we take that large size that's behind and we place, we, we place it into the dark pool um, so, that there's, so that your order is continuously working. So it's kind of cool, right? Because... Now you have when you when you place an ice one of our, when you use one of our iceberg um, order types you have one order that may work on the you know on the exchange and OTC desk and it's just trickling out orders to fill but then the real entire size is actually being rested and staying into the dark pool and during that time if someone comes in into the dark pool they can grab it so you we are kind of naturally building out that liquidity from people who use our iceberg orders and then guys who are just you know only interested in dark pool and placing orders in there. And so from, you know, kind of moving away, you know, a step from, 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 you know, the dark pools, the, you know, wh- where do you see the, the, the most opportunity from, from, you know, the point of view of, of growing, you know, the trading side of, side of your business? Like, you know, I, I look and I see, you know, things like micro strategy going out and buying $450 million with the Bitcoin. I see, you know, you know, companies like Square doing billions of dollars in transactions, you know, do, do you think it comes from individual firms or do you think it comes from from partnering with, you know, companies like, you know, Square where, where people can buy, you know, you know, retail traders can buy significant amounts of a particular asset? Well, I think for the, the biggest opportunity for the dark pool or just the biggest opportunity... Well, but both, both, and and I'd also love to kind of think of uh, th- you know hear your thoughts on you know how miners could use a dark pool because to me that you know miners you know seemingly to me you know have electricity bill at the end of the month and oftentimes will have to move a very large amount of Bitcoin in a very fast period of time and you know to me they they, they kind of feel like an ideal client so I'd love your perspective on that as well yeah so you know I, I, for the dark pool for us and the way I see it is you know it's. It's all the like the the biggest value and opportunity is really the, the these large these large institutions and enterprises who haven't been in crypto who are starting to enter in, but then they're going to come in with size, right? Like I think everyone's been waiting for these guys to come in, and you're kind of starting to see this now with uh, MicroStrategy. They just moved 250 that 250 million and an additional 176. I don't know where they executed that, um, but you're kind of seeing that price go up. <laughs> Um, but like these guys who are trying to trade these large sizes, they're the ones that, are, you know, we see that bridge because now they can comfortably and safely, you know, put these large orders in without the market having to see and, and realize what's going on. Um, and then they can start building that, 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 that war chest and that inventory that they need. And then it's like, you know, and then it's also like, you know, it's the other, you know, OTC traders who, you know, who are looking really to, or actually like OTC traders and individual traders we're trying to get a better price, right? Because, you know, as, as I said before, like the dark pool, uh, it as, as much as it helps with, you know, the private trading, it also can improve your trade execution because, you know, if you are willing to buy it at a discount and someone's willing to sell, it's going to meet the, or it's going to meet the price in the middle. So, you know, whatever your limit price is for, for the dark pool, it can always outperform and do better if there's a buyer that comes in to cross that. Um, 
so you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna see that you're gonna see that adoption, and I think that's that's the main that's one of the main things that Dark Pool will will provide. Now, if I now if we're talking about like in miners too. I mean, like I think I, I think you just said it perfectly, right? Like these guys who are coming in, they need to trade large sizes, and you know they'll be and you know a lot of the a lot of the exchanges OTC providers who have relationships with them already know what their sizes are, and they're going to prepare it, and you know may maneuver the pricing. And if you if they place it in a dark pool, no one's going to know, and then they can actually get a you know potentially get a better price and better execution. Um, so we may see that, and I think what's going to be very interesting is, is you're not going to see, like you may see, like you may see you may like the market may not realize now as much you know how much actually is being traded in the market, which could be very interesting to to, to see what happens. Um, but I think to, the, to your other question, like you know, I think like you know who is going to be a a big adoption for this space? Like you know, we've been seeing like the billions of dollars that's being moved by Square, and then now you heard PayPal coming in, right? Dude, like I, I think like that is the I think that's the first level of adoption when you have these guys and the retail folks because they are the gateway for retail and individuals, and as these guys and you're partnering with the, them, as they come in, like these institutions aren't going to be able to you know ignore it anymore because like if you have these your your end end customers coming in and and wanting to to get crypto. You know, these institutions are going to be like, all right, we need to, we need to get in because we're seeing this mass market coming in, and if PayPal, all these major payment companies and like challenger banks are coming in and offering it to their clients, by all means, you're, you're going to just see that. Like, I got to go in for that. And so, what are your thoughts on the uh, the Tagomi acquisition by Coinbase? Uh, what do you think that means? Uh, you know, wh- one, what do you think the the logic was there? If it's something you're comfortable talking about, and uh, you know, what do you think that means for for the prime brokerage space in general? Yeah, um, I mean, like, I'll, I'll share some thoughts, right? Like, I, I thought it was a very interesting um, acquisition. Um, you know, it, it kind of says that, you know, I think a part of it is, is that, to, I mean, um, Coinbase kind of saw that, you know, prime brokerages, prime brokers, platforms like Tagomi and ourselves are, are growing. And a lot of the funds and institutions are preferring to use our systems over theirs. And one way to re- reacquire those customers is to acquire, uh, is to acquire a company. Right, um, and so you can kind of see like it was kind of like a I, I think it as like a, a defensive move where right. they can acquire you know basically get back their customers or make sure that their customers stay within their eco space. Right. Um, what I found interesting though is was that you know with a prime broker, it, the whole thing is is that you know if you're if you're going to offer best execution, you kind of have to be independent, right? You have to make make sure that your prices are going to be scattered all across and it's going to be executing across all LPs. Um, so I, I do wonder, I don't think anyone really knows yet. The is, conflict of interest. The conflict piece of, of interest. Exactly. Right. Um, and I think, so I think they're like, look, and like, by all means, I, I think it makes sense that people are concerned or questioned about it. And it's, it's just a matter of time to figure out how it pans out. Um, but you can just see that with this first acquisition, that there is a need, there is a want, and there's a value there. Um, you're, you're having funds come in and using it. Um, and so I, I think that, I think that was the biggest piece. Now it's just a matter of time of figuring out. Like, all right. Like, what's what's next? Like, will all other exchanges try to adopt the um, same model of acquiring prime brokerages, or will exchanges be partnering and working with prime brokerages? Like, so that, that, I think that's going to be an interesting thing to see. Yeah, I think also will custodians be acquiring prime brokerages uh, or building them themselves? I think is also going to be interesting. I mean, we're seeing that with with a number of platforms as well as you know OTC desks like you know 
Genesis going out and, and building their own prime brokerages as well. So certainly interesting to see how the market is gonna, you know, kind of transpire because I mean, as, as you mentioned time and time again, it's, it's, it's needed, right. And, you know, yeah. it's about time. So, um, moving into more degenerate territory, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, you know, the recent, you know, DeFi mania, you know, what do you think is real? What is fake? What is staying power? And also like, are you seeing institutional demand for any of these things? Yeah, no, no. So look, I, I think the DeFi space is real. I think it's been real and there's been interest in it since 17. I, I like, and I'm an investor in, in, in multi-coin and those guys had a thesis early on that DeFi was going to be a, a, a big component into, into crypto. Um, now this craze, uh, everyone getting into DeFi and like, you know, this, this wave of freaking like people making, you know, 10 Xing and so forth. I think that's a little bit, um, off because no one really knows what the hell is going on and people are farming like no other and you kind of like i think you and i were just talking about coin gecko releasing that uh that yield rate yeah this is super this is super cool to anybody <laughs> listening uh you know full props to coin gecko coin geckos released this new thing where you can see yields of all these different decentralized finance platform and there's a degen mode and you could just see the most ridiculous like i i can't remember what it was at the top but it was like a kimchi a kimchi tendies you know loan would yield like 4300 it, it yielded 0.45% hourly interest or something nonsensical like that yeah i'm, I'm actually looking <laughs> at it right now <laughs> there is one that's offering 4256% yearly returns and that's 0.49% hourly returns <laughs> so you're telling me what's real what's not Dude, I, I think that's not real. All right, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but really, Are you sure? <laughs> but like, dude, like, what's really cool is like, you know, like, I mean, like, if you look at the automated market making that's happening, like the AMM, like, that whole concept is so freaking interesting. Like, that's like a new, new process, new way to create liquidity. Um, and I, so, I, I think that's real. I think that's going to be something that people are going to be looking into, um, and actually have been and building off of. But this, the DeFi space of yielding and, and you know gen generating yield interest and being able to borrow and lend to whoever, um, dude, I, I think like and you kind of see that with that adoption, like you know you're seeing Binance and Coinbase making these adoptions, and you know we're we've been actively looking into it as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I was gonna ask, like, do you think that's thing you could offer clients, like you know the ability to to still, I mean, I you know you know, starting with staking assets, but, but going into, you know, lending, you know, through DeFi protocols, as well as trading on DEXs, like, is that, is that kind of on the horizon or at least, you know, something that's on the table? Yeah. And no, that's, um, that's do like, we boot, like ever since the DeFi craze, like we've been actively looking at it and that's definitely something that's on the table and something that we want to, to add because, you know, people want access to liquidity and this is just another source of liquidity. Um, and it's just an interesting market where like, there's actually, um, a use case for it. So like, we're just trying to make sure that like everything, everything that we do, we try to do it compliantly. We check, we try to make sure that everything's good to make sure that our customers are safe and secure and they could be, you know, they could, they could be at ease. So when we're getting to this DeFi space and what we're looking into it, we're just trying to make sure that everything checks off um, and make all the boxes look good. And then, and so what, what are those types of things that you're, are, are you considering like, you know, smart contract risk? Are you considering like whether these things are actually securities and if that offers, you know, presents any risks, like what, what are the, how are you diligencing these assets? It's, it's all, it's all the above really. It's like, so the first piece is, is, you know, all these smart contracts, you know, correct. Like how are they audited? Um, because like you, you kind of seen, 
in, in the DeFi space, a lot of a lot of projects have gotten the rug pulled, right? And so, like, you know, how do we make sure that's okay? And then the second piece is, is you know, yeah, are these securities or not? What does the SEC think? You know, what protection does the customers have? Um, these are all things that we're, we have to consider. Um, and then, like, you know, in terms of, you know, if DeFi were to be added to our platform, like, how does that work? Um, you know, like, how will the custody work? Is, is it, you know, independent? And, I, you know, being DeFi itself, it would have to be independent. So it's, there's just a number of different aspects you have to look into. And, you know, it, I, we could just go on and on about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's 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 certainly it's certainly interesting, and I mean certainly something that I'm sure you guys are at least hearing a, a bit from with your clients. I mean, when you know they're sitting on on stable coins because they're not seeing an opportunity to trade, and all of a sudden you can you know lend out USDC and USDT or whatever it is, and and, and earn you know eighteen percent a year on a DeFi platform, you know, let alone four thousand percent, but you know eighteen percent a year, right? It's it's hard to sit on the sidelines there. It really is. But I mean, like, so that's the thing, right? I think there are some platforms that you could kind of trust. Like, I, I trust, and I look at, you know, BlockFi, or if I look at those guys at, you know, Genesis, like, they're household names. You can somewhat trust them. But the guys that, like, I, I think for guys who are looking in the side and they're like, all right, I could yield 18, 20, 30% or whatever, dude, like, you got to, like, question a little bit like as i mean much there's as- a reason there's a reason <laughs> that you can yield that much right it's because there's a there's a massive risk associated with it and also i think something that nobody considers is what is the yield in it's not like it's a yield in u.s dollars it's a yield in hot dogs and kimchi <laughs> and sushi and anybody listening that's not fully into crypto we now have tokens that have popped up in the last month called hot dog kimchi and sushi <laughs> and i think there was cream finance this morning got listed on 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 uh, on binance so every day it's a new food item so yeah. <laughs> by, by the time this gets released there's probably gonna be another eight items on the menu so i i, I can't wait to see what's next <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but like just going back to one last thing with DeFi and like landing and stuff like like there's there's a concept of rehypothecations rehypothecation that people overlook and and when it comes to lending and borrowing that's something that I think people should be aware of um, because when you are when you are lending funds and this kind of goes back into even tr- in the traditional markets where banks were rehypothecating funds so what what that what rehypothecating means is you know you lend your coins to say um, institution right and then they give you a yield well they give you that yield because they're taking your coins and they're relending that out to somebody else. Right. And so, and that person then may then relend that out to somebody else. And there's like that, you know, double and triple relending. And that's kind of like rehypothecating where now you're wondering like your risk is no longer just with one person. It actually trickles over to other people. Um, so that's actually a very like scary. I think that's a very scary part with lending and marketing that uh, people don't look into. Yes. Yeah, so, so any, if anybody listening, we actually did a really interesting episode a couple of weeks ago with Paul Sachs, who's the founder of Digital Gamma. I'm not sure if you're aware of, of them, but they're building the first tri-party repo uh, platform for crypto, which is basically like, you know, there's a borrower and a lender. They both put up collateral. Um, and, 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 you know, this company Digital Gamma is the intermediary there. Um, and, and, you know, let's say they'll put up 120%. And, and so he, he, you know, he went in to, you know, all the kind of challenges with CFI and DeFi and, and the different forms of rehypothecation. It's certainly an interesting topic and, and risk that people need to be aware of. Yeah. And, and Paul Sachs, he's a great guy. Him and his team, it's like what they're doing is, is, is phenomenal and like kind of like great for the space. Um, so if you guys haven't checked out, you know, Gamma, you should guys definitely should check it out. Yeah. So my, my next question for you, I mean, especially in light of what you told me earlier, right, which is, you know, you know, 
on the uh, Long Island Railroad reading uh, Wire magazine, looking at you know Bitcoin. You know, my question for you is, you know, we ask every guest how they define fundamentals for crypto, but my question for you is. How did you define fundamentals when you first got into the space? How did you look at Bitcoin valuation? Like, like how did you think about it uh, or at least start to conceptualize it back then? And how has that changed over time? Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. I actually don't think it's, to me at least, it hasn't changed as much. Um, like the way I saw Bitcoin, I didn't really see it as a product that's going to make me millions like or I mean, make me $100,000. I didn't think about the, the, the valuation of it. I actually just looked at it as, as the as the the use case and think me thinking about it like all right well if this use case is valuable um and there's a finite amount of a finite amount of, of it then there's going to be value and you, you, you should kind of assume that there's going to be a an appreciation of it um and so when i was like look when i was just looking at bitcoin um and then like over the years i was really just looking at all right well you know what's the use case like what's the value of it um and you know who's using it is it going to continue and you know, actually, like, honestly, like around 2018, I was actually, I actually had like a grim look on it because I was looking at Bitcoin and then like, you know, all the other coins were like, you know, they're doing what they were doing. And in my reality, I was like, actually, like, there's not really a, a, a strong use case. And it kind of had like, I kind of, I was trying to like, I was struggling trying to figure out like, where's the value um, outside of being, you know, a, a store value and, you know, holding it, um, I, I couldn't figure it out. And then, um, you know, I look back into what's going on today and you're looking at inflation and you're looking at, you know, everything going on in this world. You know, if there's one thing that has, that, that's been consistent in, you know, it, it's Bitcoin and some other cryptos as well. Um, and, and so the way my fundamental really is just looking at reality, like, do you really need, like, like, like how can Bitcoin and what's the use case of Bitcoin and, uh, and certain other cryptos, right? And, you know, people always easily and freely use the word blockchain, but there's a lot of things that, you know, what they built out for blockchain that is actually just a, an advanced database, right? But, you know, when you're looking at Bitcoin, I, I think, or even Ether, um, and you're kind of seeing the more value of what Ether's value is in, in the DeFi space. Um, but just going back again to, to Bitcoin is, is that for my fundamental value has been, it's like, it's the, it's the use case, right? Because you look at everywhere in this world, you know, one value is, is that, Bitcoin is probably the only digital asset that has enough liquidity anywhere in the world. Every single exchange has it. Every you could you could get it through an ATM. You could set it up in a P2P. Um, there's 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 really there's no friction. There's always an on ramp and off ramp for Bitcoin. Um, it's interesting. I, you know, I haven't thought about it, but it's true, right? It's 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 easier for people in developing countries to get Bitcoin than it is for them to get U.S. dollars. Exactly. And I, I think there's actually an article that came out in. Uh, I think it was the growth in Nigeria or something, um, because it's actually been saved. Like guys, like 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 small businesses in Nigeria, they're using Bitcoin really to pay their suppliers and manufacturers in China because it's easier for them and cheaper for them to 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 use. Given everything going on with inflation, everything in the market, like they are relying on Bitcoin, and so like that's the value. Um, yeah, I mean one of our one of our previous guest, uh, James Zhang was talking about, you know, he grew up in the, in the Congo and he sends money back to the Congo every month. He's been doing it for the last, you know, five, six years and he sends back Bitcoin. It's, it's easier than sending dollars and, and it's, you know, more, they, they prefer it. They prefer to accept it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and that's, that's part of it. And then, so like, you know, kind of like going off of that, like, you know, people who are using it and so forth. And then you're kind of seeing, you know, 
so like how many of the transactions or how the, how the network is operating as it gets more adopted. Right. And, you know, I, I think when you're kind of like my fundamentals of looking at that is like, I'm looking, I'm really looking at like transaction levels too now. Like, you know, is, is it supporting what it can? Like, is, is there a certain limit? Um, that's why I was kind of actually kind of negative about uh, ether just because like with DeFi going about, um, you kind of saw like, dude, like the gas prices on ether were just insane. And so in my view, I was like, all right, well, there's a limit to Ether. Um, and can it really continue supporting DeFi? Is it going to move to another protocol? Um, and so that's that's part of the fundamentals I've been looking at too. And so that's kind of how it changed. All right, cool. So what I was what I was uh, getting at is uh, basically, you know, you know, get, it seems like you think that different tokens have different uh, you know, fundamentals, right? You know, like, you know, Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin's fundamentals are different than Ethereum's, right? And so, you know, does that kind of mean that if, if a fundamental depends on the utility and the use case of that asset, does that mean that, you know, some of these assets that that don't really have any users kind of have no value, which I think is a, you know, a, probably a, a very valid point, but, you know, they, 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 some of them are still worth billions of dollars yet have, you know, 5,000 daily active users. Yeah, I mean, okay, look, like, I'm not going to like, you know, so that, that's kind of like what I, what I believe in and, and think. But then the thing is, it's with crypto, honestly, like anything can, anything can change. Like, like, like there are, there are, there are so many different factors can, that can, that can impact it. And like what I'm thinking about the infin- fundamentals today, honestly, like if, if technology or something is changing the market, it could be completely different the next, next couple of months. Right? Well, I mean like OMG, you know, USDT moved to, to Omisco or Omisego, or I guess called OMG network now. And it went up by like 300% in like a day yeah. or two days. I mean like, and, and that, and that, in that case, like, yeah, like for me, like, so I didn't really always understand to be honest, like Omisego's value and so forth. Um, but it's, it's a fact right now, you know, like USDT kind of moved over there because, you know, I believe it was, it was because it, the network could be managed a little bit better than ether. Is that right? Yeah, I think also just they, you know, they just continued to need to move to more and more networks as the just there's so much, you know, USDT volume across all these networks that the fees were just going up, you know, an egregious amount. I mean, that's why they're also on Tron. Uh, you know, they moved from Omni Bitcoin because of of fees. And, you know, so I think it's just a matter of, you know, reducing the cost structure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's part of it. Um, and I, I wonder, though, like, like, you know, with Ether, right, you have to. Every time you transfer ether, you're 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 spending ether with gas and so forth. Is Omi go the same way? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Yeah, like, I think that's the thing. It's like there are. Like, no. it, I mean, the, thing, the one thing about crypto <laughs> that I've learned from being in this space full time for three plus years now is that nobody knows anything. Like. And you've been in this space for what seven years, and 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 you know you're still we're still asking questions. Like I mean, no one. There's so much going on in this industry that trying to stay on top of everything is just impossible. It, dude, actually, you bring up a good point. Like I'm going to say this, right? This is to everybody in the audience. It's like if there's somebody that claims they know everything, or like they're saying, "Oh, I know the fundamentals. This is how it mostly works." You just call up pure bullshit because I don't think anyone does. Like. I mean, the whole point of this podcast is the point is is the fact that like you know it's an endless journey to figure out what I ask every guest what Bitcoin's fundamentals are, and every single guest has a different answer because there are no right it doesn't exist right we're still trying to figure this out right we're still early right I think it's important that we have these conversations and we try to understand you know how how these assets you know accrue value like the fat protocol thesis right should the value accrue to the protocol or the application layer like 
we still don't know the answer to that, right? I mean, there's there's so many questions that are kind of still outstanding. Like, like you know, you know, NVT was a big thing for a long time. Now it's kind of disappeared. Like, you know, you know, we're, we're still so early. I think it's just important that we ask these questions. But but to your point, you know, anybody running around, you know, proclaiming that they understand what moves the price of, you know, we're, we're, we're a large data provider, right? And we help hedge funds, you know, trade this asset class. And I can't claim that I know, you know, people ask me, oh, why did something move one way or another? Or, you know, what direction is something going to move? And to say that, you know, is, you know, asinine, right? The best thing you can do is use as much data and intelligence and, and information that you have to make the more most informed decisions. Right. And I, I think that's the beauty of the way you guys are working on like the tie, right? Like you guys are providing like, all, like, I think part of the value of, of crypto is making sure that information is being shared but clean information is being shared um i think that's i think that's one of the be- like the the beauties of what i love about what you guys are doing um because you know fundamentals and everything like i, I think one of the beauties is that they, you need to understand you need to always learn what's going on because things are constantly changing and what you need is information and data um and i think like data providers like you you guys are so important to the space and the fact that you know the way you guys are operating i mean i, I think it's i think it's game changing which is great and and so my, you know, my next question, kind of, you know, going off the back of 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 DeFi, um, and 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 you know, talking about fees on Ethereum and other other sorts of risks, we kind of hit on, or you know, broadly speaking, what what still worries you most about the crypto space, and you know, what keeps you up at night? You know, what do you think are the biggest risks, and how has that changed since you first got into the space? Um, actually, I don't think my, my, the, the the concerns and risks have really still changed. I mean. Because like what keeps me up at night is honestly like oh man is there is there another big hack or is there another big you know theft or something going on in in in, in this world because you're kind of you're, like look we're like we are still like we are still in the early stages like we kind of saw it in the beginning with with you know when when crypto exchanges first started where everyone was worried about oh, will you get hacked or like you know is there an exchange hack because that does have the biggest impact right and then now it's like DeFi too like. You're kind of saying like BZRX. I think this is the third time they got like eight million dollars. I mean, how much? How much is it? How many times has Ethereum Classic been fifty-one percent attack already? It's seven times this week. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but like, those are the like the thing is like look like you kind of like unfortunately you kind of need to have those things happen because when those things occur, you're then able to improve and develop more. And those are the things that can keep you know keep me up and at are concerned about because. That does impact the market. That impacts the sentiment. Um, that impacts how like adoption. Like, do people want to come in or not? Um, so there's there's that piece, but you know, there's that negativity. But then there's that positivity because at least we are figuring that out so that you can get to the next level. Are you or, or when when you first got into the space? You know, the reg, there was a lot less regulatory clarity. Um, you know, are you you know were you concerned about regulation at the beginning and, and Bitcoin being regulated out? And is that something that you still have any concerns uh, about? Um. When I when I first started, I actually didn't know how. I, I was frustrated because I didn't know how any like the government would would regulate it, and you know it's kind of fortunate because like you kind of look at the beauty of it, and you're like, man, like what makes this so great is that it's unregulated because it, it's like the, the lack of regulation has really pushed the innovation of crypto, right? Like people were all over the world were just building out new ideas, building out new processes and just trying it out and so forth. Unfortunately, some people got burned um, and so forth. But then that innovation was just getting there, right? And I was just moving it. Um, so I was never really, it was so like my worry was really like, oh man, like, like 
how will regulation um, really like stunt the growth of, of crypto? Um, but like, you know, like as I've matured more, um, yeah, I'm realizing like, you know what, like there, there does still need to be some type of regulation. Um, there needs to be some control because at a certain point there are, you know, when money comes in, there always are these bad actors and there needs to be some type of framework. Now, is it, now I'm not saying is it appropriate for the, the governments to do it or should it be self-regulated? Um, you know, I, you know, I, I personally prefer the self-regulation where like there's a group of industry veterans who know this space and know what works is the best way. But, you know, I, I think every, every, every state, every government is very different and, you know, regulation is always welcome because it is to protect people. Yeah. I mean, especially I think with just so many of the freaking Ponzi scams and, you know, things that have, you know, hit in this market and, you know, all the token issuers that are, you know, getting slapped with massive fines from the SEC for just, you know, these ridiculous promises. And, you know, you know, obviously remember BitConnect and, uh, you know, all the other shit. I think that's still one of my best, like my favorite videos to watch the, I don't know if you ever saw it, but BitConnect and the, and the, the remix, the remix video, everybody after you're done listening to the podcast, we're wrapping up soon. Go, go listen to the BitConnect uh, EDM remix. It is a fantastic, fantastic video. <laughs> I'm probably gonna put that on right after this too. Yeah, my 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 second my second uh, favorite video is uh uh it's it's uh it's a Tony Tony Vise and and Mike Novogratz uh, remix of like Novogratz says we go to moon and it, it's called Bitcoin please go to moon. It's fantastic. So this is my second favorite uh, meme song in crypto. I, oh, actually, I actually never saw that. I got I to gotta go. Listen. That's, I gotta, I'll, say, I'll send the link. That's a, that's a great one. one. One other thing I wanted to add, you know, in terms of regulation, you know, regulation also used to be something that I was concerned with. But, um, you know, I, I speak to a lot of the on-chain data companies that are working with governments and regulators. And one thing that I'm constantly hearing is like regulators love Bitcoin because the second that somebody KYC is on an exchange, all of a sudden using the Bitcoin network, you know, the fact that all the transactions are posted you know, it's, it's, if something gets hacked, it's very easy to figure out who that person is, right? It's easier. It's much easier to track uh, a hacked Bitcoin than it is to track a forged $100 bill at, at you know, a, uh, at, a, at a gas station or anywhere else, right? And I think that, you know, as much as that sucks and we wanted censorship resistance, you know, I think it's, it's you know, will help. Um, you know, helps from a regulatory point of view as well. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. It, it's, you know, it's so funny that you say that because like, you know, you like at least from institutions or like when we, when I first started off, they were like, oh, you know, it's unregulated or like you don't know who has what and so forth. But like, I, th- I think like crypto, Bitcoin, like it is the most, one of the most trackable assets. You can see exactly where it came from. And so it's, 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 it's so funny that we used to make the censorship <laughs> resistant case because it's just bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, com- it's complete bullshit. And like, I, I mean, I think on, on, I, I was either on Zcash or Monero. Um, uh, I had a uh, Philip Gradwell from Chainalysis on, uh, and he said like only 20% of transactions are even using the shielded features. So like, you know, you're even able to track on, you know, quote unquote privacy coins, what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I mean but look, the funny thing is like, you could, you could still like hide the amounts, but you could still track where it came right. from. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, and that, that's like, that's like, and like, yeah, it's funny. Like you said, like only like 20% of that feature is actually being used. Um, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so, and so, you know, following up on what worries you most, what has you most excited about the space? And it's, it's on, it's, it's on, it's honestly, there's just the growth. Like, so like what has me excited about the space is, you know, just look like the fact that you and I are talking about this, like the different fundamentals of different changes of what's going on. Um, these different innovations of what's going on in DeFi and how it's 
constantly changing. Like I love that, right? Like the fact that you know we are seeing things change, people coming up with new ideas. Like the whole fact of this farming, which is literally you're you're just collecting digital points and then it's creating some type of value. Um, this is shaping our future, and these are shaping like our kids' futures. And like this innovation is what's you're so shaping your your kids' future <laughs> farming kimchi and sushi. <laughs> I love it, um, but like, but like the the second thing that's really like in in all seriousness though, like the the thing that's really exciting though is that you are actually starting to see like we've been waiting for this, and you are actually starting to see like real adoption come into the space. You have Square, you have PayPal, you know Revolut, um, like all these guys are actually really coming in. MicroStrategy, who's putting their who put their treasury into crypto, Bitcoin. Like I still think that's fucked. That's right. I, <laughs> I. I just think that's like phenomenal, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And I mean, do you see what happens? There's. It kind of reminds me. Do you remember Long Island? Long Island Ice Tea became Lock, Long Island Blockchain Company oh in yeah. uh, in in 2017, and all of a sudden their stock went up. And then Kodak said they were going to launch a miner. And what we've seen with MicroStrategy is all of a sudden they say they're going into you know holding their treasury in Bitcoin, and the price of of their stock went up by like 20. percent So hopefully others follow. Yeah. you know it's uh, it's only a positive for us. Exactly. And like, and like with that, then like what I'm excited about is like, dude, I can't wait to build out more and more products that's going to help facilitate these guys because like what we're, what we're doing here is just super exciting and like, it's just going to help those guys. So that's the exciting thing. Yeah. I mean, the coolest thing for me as well is just like the people that we're able to have conversations with now would not even respond to an email three years ago. Um, and it's just amazing to see how much this space has really progressed over that time. And, and, you know, you know how, you know, pensions are, you know, maybe not allocating, but a lot of them are becoming serious about the space. I mean, real money is starting to flow in. Yeah, no, I actually, I, I think I've, I've, well, I've heard rumors or whatnot that pen- some pensions actually have been in this space or like, well, but everything through indirect, right? I know of a fund that just took capital from a big fund punch pension a hedge funded crypto and i'm not sure that had happened before so they're in the space yeah are starting so my last question is is the most fun question and and you know you've been in the space since you know probably pure coin and uh you know you know and and uh you know all those other uh you know fun uh you know, fun coins that have existed over, over the years, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, when Dogecoin was, was much bigger than it was. And, you know, uh, so I'm sure you've traded the, the shittiest of the shit coins at some point. So I, you know, I, I, I'd like to know what is the, the shittiest token that you've ever bought and, and owned? Man, that's a long list, buddy. <laughs> that's a, I, Let's start. Give, <laughs> give us a couple, give us a couple funny ones. Oh uh, no! So I, I got in. I got into something called not like Nautilus, which this was back in like 2016. No idea what it was. Um, I got into. I still have because I can't get out of it. It's called Gimli. <laughs> right? Oh um, my god! I know Gimli. That's the that is the like the online gaming. Like you can tip gamers or bet on gamers or something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> One of my friends is an advisor to that project. That's so random. I didn't even know anybody had ever heard of it before. Yeah, it's That's very funny. frustrating because like you don't even get it's, it's it's so shitty. It doesn't have it doesn't even have a price anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my god! What else is there? I, I got this thing called fund request and then um let's talk about DeFi. i got into i think because of all the crazy i got into kimchi i have no idea why <laughs> just because i'm korean and i love kimchi and i was like fuck it 
Oh man. Oh, but you know, man. you know, the thing is though, it's like I, I, I think like get, but like, you know, like, I think people get into these, you know, shitty coins, um, as you know, obviously for like you know the gains, but then a lot of it's also is like it's just curiosity of like you know what these guys like all these projects are slightly a little different, and you're trying to see how it works, and I think that's like kind of the fun part of it. Like, it sucks. Like, like I, I, I call this like you know, this DeFi or investing in these all coins like craps because i've like when i play craps i have so much fun like losing money (laughs) (laughs) until you wake up the next day until you wake up exactly (laughs) you're like fuck what did i do (laughs) that's why they give you free drinks at the casino exactly and then then, in this case we're getting more free tokens (laughs) yeah exactly exactly more kimchi more kimchi all right. Well, awesome. That was a uh, a great episode. I mean, f- you're full of so much different knowledge. You know, from you know, from from kind of giving us a you know a, a picture of what crypto was like back in 2014 to you know dark pools and everything you're working on now. So, so really appreciate you coming on. Where can people uh, follow you and 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 find out more about both yourself and S Fox? Yeah, you guys could uh, follow me at uh, on Twitter. Um, it's I think my Twitter's handle is called uh, Mr. Kim Crypto. Um, you could always actually, if you go to sfox.com, you could actually just directly schedule a call with me. Like any, anyone that schedules a call on sfox.com gets directed to me or my operations team. So I'm always there to talk and hit me up on LinkedIn. All right. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks, Josh.